Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. Today, I have J.M. Deboard, a.k.a. Rad Al. He is the author of three books about dreams, including the best-selling dream interpretation dictionary. He explains this complex subject simply and easily and empowers readers to discover their innate abilities to know the meaning and significance of their dreams. Welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, Gary, and thank you for the great introduction. Appreciate it. Awesome. Um, uh, so first, uh, just a little overview of um, like, um, where can my listeners find your books? Well, I have three books about dreams out, and they're all on Amazon, and some of them are at other retailers like Barnes & Noble. Go to jmdeboard.com and scroll down to the book section. That's the easiest way to be able to get there. I also have a website at dreams123.net that lists my books and it has all kinds of other information. I've been keeping that website for years and I think of it as kind of a, it's a blog, but I also put a lot of uh, learning materials there. You know, everything from like, hey, you know, zombie dreams. Well, what could that mean? Well, there's a little <laughs> lesson about zombie dreams, you know, and, to, you know, so there's all kinds of good information there. So jmdebord.com and uh, go from there. And you also have a dream online dream course. Yeah, I have a online school for dream interpretation at dreamschool.net. And it's my baby. I had... Uh, about a year of my life when I was working from home and I had a lot of time to uh, create online courses. So we went into things like dream characters. Well, there's over 50 lessons on dream characters, um, uh, subjects like dream symbols and stuff like that. So it's recorded uh, video, obviously with audio. It's me with PowerPoint slides, kind of like I'm teaching a college class. You've just sat down. You want to know the nitty gritty ins and outs, the ups and downs of dreams and their interpretation. And then I use the almost 30 years now. Uh, wow, that's kind of hard to imagine. But yes, almost 30 years since I started studying the subject and caught on to it and started with people like Carl Jung and went off into many of the um, psychologists that are uh, prominent in the field of dream interpretation, but also just the practice of examining my own dreams. And um, it, that helped me to create a process called D3 that is a one, two, three process. And I know we're going to talk about that later, so I'll save it. I think I'm going to sign up for this course. Sounds like fun. I would love to have you. I've had a lot of, you know, it's, it's a lot of information and uh, it, you have to really think of it. Some courses have all kinds of bells and whistles with fancy video editing and stuff. You kind of gotta, you know, think of it old school. You got to kind of wait for me sometimes to get up the speed, but it's, it's the same as if you sat down in a college classroom and just started listening to the professor. You've got your notes in front of you and the professor starts talking and then I put the notes up on the screen and you follow along with it. I give lots of examples too. You know, I'm a moderator at Reddit Dreams, which is the largest online home for dream sharing and interpretation. By far the most active community um, for in that area. And I've been doing it for years. And one of the things that it's done for me in return for the time that I give as a moderator and member of the community is it's given me lots of examples. 
So I don't just tell people, hey, here's a theory about dreams and what they, where they come from in the mind and what you know, a symbol could mean or whatever. I actually back the interpret with the examples and I show, well, this is a dream where a symbol is used a certain way and this is how I break it down and interpret it. And these are the clues that I follow and the, you know, the cause and effect relationships that I find in it. I'm not just going to give you the information dryly like you would find in a textbook. We're actually going to do most of the learning through example by examining dreams. So yeah, dude, go to dreamschool.net and check it out. I'll head in there right after this interview. Sweet. All right. Um, so uh, I started reading your book yesterday. I had to kind of cram for this interview. Um, so one of the first questions I have is um, about the dream symbolism. Uh, I think like a lot of people, when you think of dream symbolism, or at least I did in the beginning, as it's strictly being visual. Um, can yeah symbolism be also auditory or even emotional and all of the above yeah it's imagery and sensation primarily but there can also be symbolism if for example in sound i was helping someone at reddit yesterday who had a dream that at the end there was this demonic creature that started screaming at him and it kept getting louder and louder and louder to the point where it woke him up with the sound of this incredible screech in his ears and the way that we interpreted that sound is that there is something from within him that is telling him that he's stuck in a place in his life his mom had died some years ago and he's stuck in a landscape a personal landscape of grief and sadness and the longer he stays in that place stuck in that place um the more that there is this thing within him that's trying to get his attention and since it didn't get his, like it's having to scream at him in a sense to get his attention. This is what happens with, with dreams that when you don't listen to the messages or that there's something very important that you need to know and your dreaming mind is trying to inform you of it, it will turn up the volume. It will amplify it. Now, I talked to someone also on Reddit who had been blind since birth and I asked him about his dreams. It was a great, you know, how many opportunities do you have to talk with someone who um, knows enough about, you know, he, he understands what it is to visual, to see something visually, although he's never mm -hmm. seen before, but he understands it as a concept. Um, and I asked him and I said, well, what are your dreams like? And he's like, there's other um, senses that come into my dreams. You know, I hear things, I feel things, you know, physical sensation. He could taste things. And th this is how his dreams tell their stories, as opposed to most of us, where you kind of think of dreaming and the symbolism as a game of charades. Charades in the game of charades, you need to convey information other than by just coming out and saying it. So what your dreams do, they can say it, but more often what they do is they create metaphorical imagery and then they string the imagery together to tell a story. Each of the symbols um, and also the actions and things like that can be symbolic. You, we tend to think of symbols as being these static things like a logo, you know, but really how often in a dream do you see a symbol just sitting there? Usually there is a context to it. It's told as part of a story and there is some kind of an action surrounding it. 
Plus, actions themselves in dreams can be symbolic. In fact, I find it to be the main vehicle for the dream to use to convey um, the meaning and the ideas symbolically. It's through the actions of the dreams. So you could have an action like falling, flying, um, driving your car, flying in a plane, walking to the store, talking to your friend. These are all actions. Mm -hmm. So yes, you to answer your question, usually visual, but it can definitely dreams can definitely bring in other senses to help to tell the story. Interesting. You know, when I was a child, I used to have a recurring gene that uh, the devil broke into my house and ate a handful of shotgun shells and then killed my parents and put them in a freezer. And I remember being terrified when I had that dream. You know, and I always just sort of assumed that that dream was just, you know, like that child fear of losing their parents. That's the way that that would be the first place I would go with something like that. It's hard to reflect back on childhood and realize the things that you were experiencing that were being translated into symbolic imagery. You know, if someone came to me and said they had the, a powerful dream like that with a devil breaking into their house and, you know, grabbing shotgun shells, I would ask the first thing is, is that was your home environment a dangerous place? You know, you hear about these kids who get their hands on guns and they're like five years mm -hmm. old and they're copying what they see on TV. And the next thing you know, there's a tragedy. You know, I would that would be one of the first things that I would ask is if that, you know, to try to find out whether or not that dream imagery was related to unsafe conditions in the home. But I think you also pegged the next, the next most likely um, answer is that there was something expressing itself as a, uh, or it was a fear of losing your parents that was expressing itself, which is the greatest fear that most children have even if there's not a realistic probability of it happening, there's still something that enters into the child's mind as soon as they realize that it's a possibility that they could turn around one day and their parents aren't there. Yeah. I mean, I think I was like seven years old when I had that dream for the first time. And it's amazing. You know, I'm 52 now. And I still remember it. Um, that's actually one of my other questions. Like, a lot of people don't remember their dreams. Is there a methodology of um, remembering dreams? Yeah, there is. The, the first, it really it comes down to um, desire and time. So the first thing is have the desire. Most people don't know that their dreams are meaningful and that remembering and examining your dreams can be very beneficial for them. So they don't put the time into it. They don't have the desire. Once they know that there's something to be gained from it, then they put in the energy and the time. It's the same as, uh, you know, if I'm doing an exercise and I'm not doing it just for the love of it, if I'm doing an exercise to get a result from it and I'm not getting the result, well, how long am I going to keep that up? Or am I even going to do the exercise to begin with if I don't see the benefit of it? It's like anything in life. We have to see that we're going to get something from it. So remembering your dreams begins with desire. And then the second thing is, is time. It takes some time when you first wake up in the morning to think about your dream memories. They're very elusive. The portion of the, the, the memory banks where dream memories are written 
are the first to be overwritten by new memories. So what that means is that when you wake up and you start thinking about something other than your dreams, you are overriding your dream memories. Now, it doesn't mean that the memories are gone, but what it will most likely mean is, is that you're going you're gonna to lose your ability to be able to recall the details. The longer you wait to go through that process of remembering your dreams. So to remember your dreams, time, desire, um, if you have to get up first thing, like use the bathroom or something, go do that and then get back into bed, get into your sleep position. The, when you, whatever position that you woke up in is the position to get back into because your body remembers your dreams too. The, the dreaming, dreaming is more about, it, it is more than just an experience of the brain. It is a full body experience. Your nervous system reacts to your dreams. So the memories are not just in your brain, they're also in your body. And if you can get your body back into its sleep position, then it can help to trigger some of those memories. I'll even roll from side to side sometimes. I'll be on my left shoulder and I'll be writing, I'll remember everything, and then I'll roll over to my right shoulder so that I can remember the dreams that I had when I was sleeping on my right shoulder because I kind of roll side to side during the night. So this is, um, so get into the, the, your sleep position. Um, another thing you can do is remind yourself before you go to sleep that you're going to dream, that you want to remember your dreams, and that you're prepared for when you wake up with those dream memories. You have a notebook, you have, uh, you could use your phone, a voice recorder, something like that. I'm old fashioned. You know, you said you're 52. I just turned mm -hmm. 50. Back in my day, we wrote everything on paper. So, you know, I've got my pen and my notepad there. And I've got a, a whole stack of these notebooks that I filled up full of dream memories. These days, I write other notes and some of them, you know, if I just need a notebook to write something in, I don't have a dedicated dream journal in that sense, but nine out of 10 pages, it's just, you know, what I wrote in the morning when I woke up and I had dream memories. So yeah, do it first thing. Don't let your mind get distracted. Don't pick up your phone and start reading your email and, you know, uh, engaging with people who maybe are, you know, if you wake up in bed with someone or you might need to go to an office or go lay on a couch or something because they're going to want your attention. You know, my wife has gotten a little more used to giving me that time in the morning. I think that she recognizes the benefit of it because when I have a chance to focus on my dreams, it also gets me in connection with that deep inner part of myself that creates my dreams. So I am in a better place when I come out and grab my first cup of coffee or whatever and start engaging with her. So um, yeah, those would be the main things for remembering dreams. You can put in, by the way, Radow, R-A-D-O-W-L. That's my online nickname. Mm -hmm. And remember dreams. And it will take you to the various resources I have at my websites and also at my YouTube channel, which is named Radow. Um, and I've got extensive lectures on remembering dreams for anyone who wants more tips. Could a dream have uh, more than one meaning? Yes, it can. In fact, this is a rule of uh, dream work that was passed on by the legendary Jeremy Taylor. Most people do not know who uh, Dr. Taylor is. He was a, uh, uh, he has a doctor of divinity and he had gone into the study of uh, dreams and ended up creating the 
um, it was like the Marin Institute for the Study of Dreams, I think was the name of it, Marin, California, which is north of um, uh, San Francisco. And he trained hundreds of people over the years who are um, uh, prominent in the field of dream interpretation now. He said as one of his, I think he had these five uh, guidelines for dream work. And one of them was, you, there's no such thing as a dream with only one meaning. And this helps you to approach, you know, people want like a solid cause and effect and they want a solid answer to what a dream means. And they want it to be all nice and neat, like a dictionary definition, but that's not how dreaming works. It's, it's not as linear as that. And there's not as much of a cause and effect relationship. You can't just apply some, you know, um, theory, although you can apply theories to understand dreams, but you can't find something that's one size fits all. It's a very fluid process when you work with dreams. And one of the things that you have to accept about it is, is that a dream can speak simultaneously to various levels of you in your life. So, you could have a dream that speaks to something that's going on in your body, your mind, your spirit, all at the same time. And it's present in the dream content. So you can interpret the dream content to understand what it's saying about what's going on in your body. But then you can also interpret the content to see what's going on in your mind and your heart and in various areas of your life. It could speak to what's going on in your social life, in your family life, in your work life, uh, in your inner life. And it can do it all at once because a dream symbol is like a picture that says a thousand words. And when you put that symbol into context of a dream story and in the personal context of the person whose dream it is, now the possibilities, you say at the picture says a thousand words, how about a picture says a hundred thousand words? This is the possibility for what just a, a what one dream symbol can mean is maybe not a hundred thousand words, but let me just stick with that example. It can say a heck of a lot. So let me give you an example. Okay. If you have, let's say you have a dream that there is a tidal wave coming at you. This is a pretty common dream theme, right? You're standing there and you're watching this wave build and build and it's coming into the shore. Okay, well, what could that symbolize? Well, the first thing, let's look at what's going on in your body. Do you need to take a leak? You know, is it building and building inside of you as you're sleeping? Your body does, or your dreaming mind responds to any stimuli that it receives and turns it into symbolic imagery. So if you need to use the bathroom, the dream could turn it into imagery of a tidal wave or a river or something like that. Um, but let's take it further. Let's say that that's, let's say that you do have to take a leak. And that's part of the reason why you're dreaming about this wave. And maybe that explains why the wave is, let's just say yellow to be obvious. But here's the other thing. The wave is like, you know, getting ready to crash down on you and you feel this sense of, of um, being overwhelmed. Like this is something that you can't stop. Well, now let's look at what's going on in your life. Does that mean that there is something that's building in, coming into your life right now or soon to come into your life that you can't stop because it's too big? You know, getting older, who can stop the, the wave of, of aging? You know, it can feel like a tidal wave when you get older, if you start experiencing, uh, you know, like just the, all the things that come with it, your, your, no, your, your, your life and your world becomes more complicated. And it is something that builds and builds. 
you know this as a 50 something year old man, you yes. know that your life is much different than when you were 15. You know, the way that you understand the world and yourself is much different and it's things that have all built on themselves. But let's go even deeper with an image like that. There could be an expression of emotion. In fact, there almost definitely, there has to be some expression of emotion because every dream symbol has an emotional component to it. So there is something in how you feel in response to seeing that wave coming in that parallels something that's going on in your life, in your emotions. So that is one of the ways you could start off just by saying, oh, well, you had a dream about a tidal wave. You just had to use a bathroom, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, there's actually more going on there. That's why you keep coming back to the dream to see what, if you can get more out of it and interpret it different ways to be able to uncover the layers to it. All right. So how about like if the wave is coming and you feel, say, paralyzed by fear? Another emotional like, component mm -hmm. of the dream. Yeah. Yeah. And is, but, and that would be something where it's, it can, you know, you would then look at what's going on in your life and ask yourself, is there some way that I feel paralyzed by fear? Is there something that's I'm, you know, is this a, how is this a kind of metaphor to express how I feel? Um, how is it explaining something, a dynamic that's going on in my life? And you keep looking. I have had dreams that it became, you know, I, I could look at them initially a certain way and kind of penetrate into them and understand them. But then later, uh, with more reflection, I was able to see that there was a deeper message to the dream. I had to be ready to get to it. I had to be, maybe I had some more growth to do. Maybe I had some deeper realizations to gain before I could really understand what it was that the dream wanted to tell me at a deeper level. There, there is a, a kind of a, a cycle to dreaming where the energy you put into it feeds back to you. And as that happens, you start to be able to gain deeper insights into your dreams and sometimes about dreams that like you don't get it all right away. There's more growth that you need to do. And then that's when the dream can reveal deeper layers to you. Kind of like an onion. Yeah, you're peeling back the layers, man. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, Carl Jung uh, used an analogy of like, um, you know, sweeping away the, think of it like an archaeological dig. You know, mm -hmm. as, you, as you keep sweeping away the, uh, the layers of dirt, you're sweeping away the layers of time and you're getting back and, you know, you're going back in time in a sense as you go down into the ground. And he found that to be a great analogy for what happens sometimes in an individual dream, but just in general with the process of dream interpretation is as you start going into deeper and deeper layers inside of yourself, as you get more as you get better at interpreting your dreams and applying what it is that they teach you so that you get something out of it, which is to expand and grow as a person. That brings me right to my next question. In your book, you have a method um, to getting to this deeper symbolism of dreams called the D3 method. Um, would you like to talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, I would love to. I can teach people in... Uh, a couple minutes, the basics of what they need to know about my process of interpreting dreams so they can interpret theirs or at least begin the process. Want to make that clear that dream interpretation, for one, you are the only one who really knows what your dreams mean. The best that I can do is to teach you a process to help to get you there. And two is that you, you want to have an, an approach to this that 
is open and fluid so that you can go wherever the dream leads you and you're not stuck into looking at it any one particular way. So I can get you started with three simple facts. So there's three steps, but let me start with the three simple facts. First of all, you know what your dreams mean. You know it because you create your dreams. Now, what you know about your dream is subconscious, but you can get to that subconscious information. It's like remembering a word on the tip of your tongue. You just got to keep focusing your mind on it. And simple fact number two is dreams are stories. All meaningful dreams are stories. Some dreams are not meaningful. They're just kind of imagery. But most dreams, especially the ones that you remember, and almost definitely the ones that impact you, are, are meaningful. And they're stories. They're engaging. You walk into the story as a participant. So there you are in the dream and you are either an observer, like you're in the audience watching the movie play on the screen, or you are an actor who is in the story. You are so immersed and engaged in the dream that you are part of the story. So dreams are stories. That's simple fact number two. And three, dreams use symbolism. Symbolism is a language that uses, like we talked about before, mostly images, but also um, other sensations to tell a story. And it's, it's a, a language that it's, it uses pictures, like I said, like a game of charades, where you're trying to get the idea across without having to actually blurt it out. And you do it by making gestures, you know, by, you know, you could draw a sign in the air, you know, that's, that's kind of the way that the dreams are using symbolism and it's part of a story. Now with those three simple facts, you go to the three simple steps and those are first identify the dreams, story elements and narrative components. The story elements are the settings, characters, and symbols. The narrative components are the actions, reactions, and resolution. This is a standard story analysis. You know, if you are, if you're reading a book or watching a movie and you, you look at the opening scene, all right, where is the opening scene? Okay, it's set somewhere. That setting in your dream was chosen with the same care and consideration as a movie like a scouting location person and a director would use the same care to be able to open up their story or whatever scene in the movie, but there they have settings in movies. There are settings in your dreams. There are characters. Why are the characters there? Who are they? What do they represent? What are they doing? These are all part of the story. And in dreams, they're part of the story and they're symbolic. So, um, so you identify the story elements and narrative components, and then you take that to step two. You've, you've, you understand that the dream is a story and you've identified the parts of it. So now you need to interpret the symbolism of it or think of it as like decoding. The symbol has an idea that's behind it. It's like a metaphor in a way or a metaphorical image. And what you need to do is interpret it and then you analyze it as part of the story. Because the symbol is never just sitting there. It's always used as part of a story. So that's step two. And then when you've done that work, you take it to step three and you connect the details in context and reflect on your life. The dream gives you all these details, they, all, all these little parts of the story, and they all fit together in a big picture. 
even when a dream seems to be flipping from scene to scene and it doesn't seem to have any continuity to it, there is actually, it's telling one story. And all of the details will connect together either as part of a symbol or, or, or as part of symbolism or as part of the story and the experience of the dream. You reflect on your life because most dreams are drawn from memories of the last day or two. Maybe not directly from memories, but as you know from reading my book, dreams can take memories that have happened recently and do it to kind of launch out into a, um, a, a, a larger story about what's going on in your life. But it begins with a specific event. Even just something you saw on TV or something, it starts there. Like, hey, why was Kojak in my dreams last night? Oh, you know, because I was watching that TV station with all those 70s TV shows on it, you know? Okay, well, it's not just a random memory. The dream brought in Kojak into my dream and made it part of my story. And now I'm figuring out why. So you reflect on your life and connect together the details. And usually by then, it has at least gotten you into the process of interpretation, if not given you the information that you need to interpret the, your dreams. This is all covered in my book, um, Rad Owl's Crash Course on Dream Interpretation. And it starts you off with the three simple facts and the three simple steps. And then it takes you into the demonstrations of how to actually apply that knowledge so that you can walk step-by-step step through a dream and interpret it. So it's kind of like, um, what that reminds me of is the process of like, I think it was like a literature, even a literature class when you read a piece of literature and you kind of reverse engineer it almost. Yeah. Yeah which I like to do, that's part of, once you understand why a dream tells a story the way it does, then you can reverse engineer it. That's part of it. You know, why did the dream bring in Kojak into my dream? You know, is it because it reminds me of someone I know who's an older male who's balding, you know, or is it because Kojak's a tough guy? Or is it because I watched that show when I was nine years old, you know, every Friday night with my parents. And there's some reference to that time of my life that the dream is using Kojak to make. So this is, this is a, this is part of the process that you go through when you're, when you're interpreting your dreams. And that's how I can teach it to you is with the examples that I give to you um, in the, in my book, um, Rad House Crash Course in Dream Interpretation. Um, so we, one of the things that, that almost everybody talks about when it comes to dream archetypes, you know, yeah. the, the, the Carl Jung theory of um, that. And um, one of the questions I have about the archetypes is, are they all the same for people of different cultures or do different cultures have their own versions of archetypes? Well, by definition, an archetype is universal. Now, it can have unique expressions based on the culture. And the so let's begin with what an archetype is or archetype. It's, mm -hmm. It depends on how you pronounce it. Um, but um, what it is, is there is deep down in the foundation of your psyche, there is a, it's, it can't be identified by like, say, autopsying the brain and saying, hey, see, we identified where the archetypes are what you're really what you're doing is you you're you're looking deep down inside what makes you the person that you are and 
you will find that there are certain patterning forces there that work on you and they work on everyone simply because they're human. So you could have, for example, the, um, the archetype that's related to your desire to make a mark on the world and live your life with vigor. This is called for, for it's called the warrior archetype. And it's a, you find this warrior type energy in all cultures. It can express itself differently. You know, um, you could have the image of the warrior in modern American culture is sort of the special forces Green Beret soldier or the MMA fighter. Whereas in other cultures, it might have shown itself as a, um, as a shogun or in Turkey, it was the Janissary. You know, in uh, different cultures at different times, the idea is the same. It's a warrior, but it has different expressions depending on the culture and the time. It's the same way with, with archetypes. They're universal in a sense, but there's different expressions for them. So this is what Jung identified was that he, he was very, very widely read and very knowledgeable of other cultures and their customs, their mythologies, their religions. Um, and he found that there was this commonality between them. And then what he noticed was is that there were people coming to him in his home or his office in, uh, in Switzerland who had never been to other, these other places or cultures, but they were dreaming about them. You know, they would dream about, say, like the Eye of Horus. And he would say, you know, the Eye of Horus is a common symbol from Egypt. And remember, this is, say, 1930. You didn't mm -hmm. have the internet where you could just go pop out and, you know, where everyone knows what the Eye of Horus is, right? You do know what the Eye of Horus is. Well, back then, hardly anyone knew what the Eye of Horus was. But it would appear in dreams. And then Jung would see there were details about the dreams that made it like from the mythology of ancient Egypt is now entering into the mind and the dreams of someone who was in modern Switzerland or modern of the time when Jung was, you know, doing, when making these observations. So what he proposed is this, that there is something that is universal to the psyches of all people. And it is the place where our deepest and most powerful dream symbols originate from. And that's what he calls the archetypes. Um, one of the people that you also mentioned in your book was Edgar Case. And Casey, I, yeah. Casey. So I always uh, mispronounce things. Um, it's all right. It's all good. But uh, he believed like in the acoustic records that anybody could access this set of records, um, you know, that contains like all this ancient knowledge. Is that the same as um, what Young was putting out or are they completely separate things? Well, at first glance, a lot of people would say that they're separate. But if you dig a little deeper, you find that they might be actually talking about the same thing. Now, the Akashic Records is said, because it's not been proven, so I'll just say it's said to be a imprint on the fabric of time and space that is a database of the experience of all of the universe going back to its origins. It's all written into the fabric of time space. This is actually now being proven by our physics, but we won't go there yet. Um, the Akashic Records is, it goes back to um, Vedic and other texts of ancient India, where they talk about how 
there is a way of using the mind to access something that is like the book of life that's said to contain the experience of all people. This is a Christian tradition. Well, there are the same idea appears in different cultures and times. There has been this um, knowledge that you can't, that there is this thing exists. It's actually written into call it the subatomic or quantum fabric of time and space. It is all a recording medium, which there are some physicists now who are making the same claims that everything that, that, that time space itself is a recording medium. And what mm -hmm. it's recording is life. It's record. It's the story of life, which of course includes us humans, but all life. Now, what Jung said is, is that there is a database Notice the commonality. Akashic Records is a database of experience. And he said that there was a collective unconscious that was a database of the collective experience of the human species going back to our origins. And that the what has happened to through all of those tens of thousands of generations leading up to modern humans, to us now, that the all of their experience has been distilled down into what he called archetypes and that they come out of this place that is deeper than just our material reality. In fact, along with um, Nobel um, laureate physicist Wolfgang Pauli, he came up with a, he speculated with Pauli that archetypes originate beyond space-time as we know it. So there is something at the foundation of our psyche that does not originate in our brains. It doesn't even originate in our reality, the reality that we know, the physical material reality. It originates somewhere else. And it is in a way like a database. So in that way, what Jung said and what, um, what's been said about the Akashic Records by people like Edgar Cayce line up and they could actually be talking about the same thing. So one of the things that just popped in my head when we were talking about this, um, I might be a little bit off topic, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, the book of Zion, have you ever heard of that? Or supposedly a book that's not written in words but uh, some people have claimed to have actually read it. Um, no, I haven't. I, em the em Emerald uh, Tablets of Thoth, I think were actually Emerald Tablets. Uh, mm -hmm. So no, I have not. Um, I, I don't know anything about it. Yeah, it's... Um, I'm going to pronounce her name wrong, but it was like Madame Blavatsky. Mm -hmm. it, uh, mm -hmm. she, she was one of the people that claimed to have read it. And I believe one of the other people that claimed to have been able to read it was actually, uh, I think it's Eric Von Donneken said he was able to access it. Huh. Well, you know, information, it, here's when information has to come from this other place into your mind, it has to take a form that is recognizable somehow through your experience of life. So if you know about books being a medium for uh, conveying information, then if you are getting pure information from a source that is coming from outside of your own mind and it's coming into your mind, then it's going to have to present itself to you in a way or a form that you are familiar with. 
so it could show it to you as a book, but what it originates as is just pure information. The uh, quantum physicists and others like Stephen Hawking um, have said that the information is made of, or the universe is made of information, that there is a... Um, that there is a substructure to our universe that is just pure information. Um, Stephen Hawking is got famous for his theory about black holes, that information from the matter that gets sucked into a black hole, mm. that it dis it's supposed to disappear, right? right. Well, what, what Hawking said is, is that the information um, stays on the event horizon of the black hole. So it actually stays in our universe. Um, and even though the matter disappears into the black hole, the information that, that created that matter, um, the blueprint for it stays. And this is what we're finding out is, is that our, our universe is constructed on top of pure information. So it wouldn't surprise me then that if you were getting information transmitted into your mind, um, to your conscious part of your mind, that it would be shown to you in a form such as a book. But there are other possibilities. It could show it to you as a, uh, you know, as a movie. It could show it to you um, as a website or something like that. Um, but the idea is basically the same. There has to be a way of getting this information to you. So people like you mentioned, Eric von Donneken and uh, Madame Blavatsky, um, what if they read this mystical book, what they're really saying is, is that this is the way that the experience was rendered in their mind's eye so that they could have comprehension of it. Yes. There's also a, um, another one called, uh, I think it's the, the, Urantia, the Urantia book. Um, that was supposedly written, I think, in Chicago by a group of mediums, which tells sort of an alternate story of creation. Yeah, I mean, if anybody's interested in that, I would go with um, The Course on Miracles. Um, that and uh, what Edgar Casey had to teach about our prehistory, uh, the history of the human species before um, known recorded history. Um, he says that there's a, uh, there's a lot that we have forgotten, um, that there were global civilizations that ended in cataclysms that are, um, there's no record of them left. You know, they, they um, did not build the kinds of structures that could last 10,000 years. Um, or those structures are at the bottom of the ocean because their civilization, you know, um, was what experienced a cataclysm which we're finding out now actually happened about 12,000 years ago uh, that there was a, um, a meteor that broke up and then started smashing across the North American content continent um, beginning up by Alaska and tracing um, a spread Southeast all the way down through um, Georgia. Um, and that these fragments of our, it was either a meteor or a comet um, hit the ice sheets and they, you know, it was like, a uh, hundred nuclear bombs going off at once. The amount of heat that was generated made the ice ice sheets, you know, massive ice sheets. It made them all melt like very quickly, which caused the biblical great flood. It didn't rain for forty days and nights. You know, the ocean came up and swallowed all the coastline, which you know was most of the people alive at the time. They lived on the coasts or close to them. If you were anywhere within a hundred miles of the coast, when you know that five mile tall 
you know, um, tidal wave came in, then you you know you're you're going out the sea along with it. So anyway, it's just a way of saying that um, there's a lot of history about us that hasn't been understood very well. Um, a lot of it is rejected, but we're finding more and more scientific evidence for it, including for the comet strike 12,000 years ago. Um, and Edgar Casey was my original source on this. Um, hmm. Casey, Casey was a, you know, there's a lot of people who make a lot of tall claims. If you watch a show like Ancient Aliens or something, it's like, oh God, everything could be aliens, right? right. You know, they're like, oh yeah, aliens taught us how to build pyramids. And I go, well, actually a pyramid, if you're building something out of stone block, any engineer worth this salt will tell you, you can't build it up like a rectangle. You have to build it like a triangle because otherwise it's going to fall over maybe on top of your head, you know? <laughs> so it's like, well, you know, maybe it's, you know, so they get a little wild with their, um, their speculations about this. But the point is, is that there are people who were able to gain access to the Akashic records, the, 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 the record of our history and they did it through um, like trance, seance, uh, but let's, let's just stay in the realm of, mm -hmm. of like trance and meditation. And they brought this information back and shared it. And people like Casey, he was a devout Christian. Um, he was a man who was honest as they come. And he struggled with some of the information he got, such as the reality of reincarnation. As a devout Christian, he said, well, this couldn't be real. Why would I say that during trance? Of course, he didn't remember saying it because there was another voice that spoke through him when he would go into his trance states. But he would get the information when he came back to waking reality. And he'd be like, well, well you know, reincarnation, that's, that goes against Christian doctrine. Well, Casey read the Bible once through for every year he was alive. And he knew his Bible better. Oh, boy, he knew it really well. And what he found was, is that if you go back into earlier um, iterations or earlier editions uh, of the Bible, that the information is actually there, but it's been written out of the Bible because of people who had an agenda to keep mm -hmm. this information from the masses. So that's why I trust people like Edgar Casey is because he was, he only desired to tell the truth. There are other people who, you know, they have other motivations and therefore the information that they give is suspect. But if you want to know about this stuff, I suggest starting with Edgar Casey. There's a lot of good information out there. Great. I want to ask another strange question. Um, the Akashic Records, is it shared by only our species or could it be shared by other intelligences? Mm, I think it would be all of them because the Akashic Records is the way that life imprints on the fabric of space and time as a record of the life that's been here. Now, if you talk about the collective unconscious of Carl Jung, he said that it's, um, that it's, it's human, but there, was, there were speculations actually that um, there were other species have their own collective unconscious. This is the way that instinctual patterns are um, passed on from generation to generation without having to be taught directly. You know, you can have in species, you can see them exhibiting behaviors from the time that they've cracked out of an egg, you know, or plopped out of their mom. And they're already demonstrating these things when they are born. They haven't had a chance to be taught it yet. This observation leads us to believe that there is something 
that is imprinted and passed on from generation to generation. It's instinctive, as Jung said, or it's part of the instincts. And therefore, it doesn't have to be learned. It's just already there. And he said, well, if this is a if this is inside of the mind, then what is it that is um, that contains this information? And he called it the collective unconscious. And yes, it, it, there are other species that must have their own collective unconscious. They must because they exhibit the same sort of um, uh, in, in behavior based on instinct that humans do, um, that other species do too. They have their own behaviors and instincts that they, and they have their own behaviors and, and instincts that are demonstrated from the time that they are born or soon after that are specific to their species. That's exactly what I would have probably thought too. Um, mythology, actually, let's see, let me skip this question. How does the subconscious mind know? what symbols to use in a dream? Well, first of all, it knows, it's starting off not with the symbol, but with the idea that the symbol is supposed to express. So it's, the, the symbol is wrapped around the idea. So it chooses it based on that. We used um, a tidal wave earlier as an example. And the idea is, is there is something that is unstoppable that is gonna cause great change. That's the idea, and then it's wrapped in the image of a tidal wave. So the other part of it is, is that the dreaming mind knows you individually and has access to all of your memories, not just your memories, but all of the memories of the human species going back to its origins through the collective unconscious. The dreaming mind is the bridge between these two parts of you the one part of you that's very much based in present time and space uh, and has a history, you know, your history, your memories, but also then there's the other side of the bridge, which is all of our histories together. So what it does is it chooses the symbols that resonate personally with you and have a specific and personal meaning for you. There are some symbols that have a sort of universal meaning to them, but you can never assume that from your dream just because you dreamt about that symbol. It doesn't mean that you dreamt about it in a way that has that universal meaning. Your dreaming mind is picking these things out so that it can tell a story to you that resonates with you specifically. So it's, it's very well tuned to you. It's tuned to you. It's, it's made, crafted just for you. It's like you have James Cameron, Steven Spielberg, and Peter Jackson somewhere deep in your mind. These are three great directors, in case anyone out there is not, doesn't get my reference, who are crafting your dreams for you. And they have a full crew. They have a casting director who picks the perfect characters. They have uh, scouting location uh, directors who pick the perfect location settings for your dreams. And it has a psychologist who knows your psyche better than you do in most cases. And it is gonna pick just perfect symbols to tell a story specifically for you. Well, one of the things that I just also, I've, I've interviewed somebody else about dreams. One of the things that he mentioned was a difference between what Jung referred to as big dreams and small dreams. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> how, how do you tell the difference between the two? The personal impact um, of the dream basically is the difference. Let's define this for the audience first. Jung said that most of our dreams in our dream life is kind of routine in a way, you know, just in the sense that there's, they're not, it's not going to be hugely important. It's not going to be life-changing. It's just sort of an account of the day-to-day um, uh, psychological digestion of your experience of life. Now, Sometimes, though, you have what Jung called a big dream. You know, he was a man who liked to be, you know, to, to give terms out to big dream. You know, of course, it was probably translated from, you know, some other language. And we just call it big dream. Maybe there was a deeper thing that he meant to it because he described it in German and it got translated to English. He wrote in four different languages. So you got to give him, you know, um, got to give him some um, some leeway here. But he said that there are sometimes these dreams that have a very big impact on us. They're very important. They can sometimes be life-changing and that we um, should really watch out for those dreams. Um, He had a few of them. Um, Jung said, you know, he was the um, son of a country pastor uh, in Switzerland, uh, a Protestant, uh, and he observed that his father, was kind of going through the motions of his religion as basically an administrator of his religion. He was part of the religious bureaucracy. And he would give these sermons, but not really have his heart in it, basically. And Jung observed this. And from a young age, he thought it was very, um, it disturbed him to observe this about his own father. And he said that he had a dream that he was in the church And remember, he spent a lot of time there. Every Sunday as the pastor's son, he would have been there in church, you know. And he said he had a dream where a gigantic turd fell through the roof and splattered all over the altar. (laughs) And yes, so what this did is not only is it a great metaphor for how he feels, it allowed him to express feelings that had been pent up inside of him. And remember, if you have a giant turd inside of you, it might be pent up. So in a way, he was able, the dream was able to give thought to something that had been disturbing him and allowed him to express it in a way that got his attention and got him past this block that he was at in his own life. So you would describe that as a big dream because for him, it was life-changing. It allowed him to accept his father and his father's version of religious spiritual faith the way that his father was. He couldn't change that, but it allowed him to free himself from under his father's shadow so that he could go on to develop what is basically a psychology of spirituality. There are a lot of people who, through Jung's teachings, have found what they wanted to get from their church or their synagogue or their temple um, or you know any religion, what they were missing from the what the religion didn't give them, they were able to find it in Jung's teachings. That's what he did for me. He gave me the courage to question the doctrines and dogmas of the Christian faith that I was brought up in. And when I found Jung, I was in that phase where I had rejected a lot of it. I had become old enough to think for myself and realize that there was a lot that was 
wrong about what I'd been taught, or at least it wasn't true. And that uh, there was another way of getting to the same place inside of yourself. Jung's teachings are all about finding your own soul. And he uses dream work as his number one way of doing it. Uh, one of the terms that you just mentioned was psychological digestion. What is that? It is a, we, we have a experience of life day to day, and we often don't have time to digest and process it while we're awake. So our dreams largely do it for us. What the dreaming mind does is it takes your experience of the day and then it processes it. It digests it. It includes the emotions, the memories, and it puts it all into its place inside of you. There is an existing psychological structure of who and what you are. That is everything that you have been up to this point. And then your daily experience of life is going to be added to it. And what you're doing as you dream is you are psychologically digesting your experience of life. And just like digestion in the body, it's picked apart and everything goes to its own place. If it's beneficial for you or it can add to the psychological body that you are, then it's, that's what happens. And if it's not beneficial or there's nothing you can do with it, then you shit it out, basically. You know, it's, it gets expelled. Um, and, and, dream, and so for in a dreaming sort of way, what it is is that it kind of gets set to the side. The dreaming mind reviews everything that happens in your life with this eye on the big picture of who and what you are. And it says, where does this fit? Is there something we can learn from this? Can we make cross-references between various areas of life? Can, is, there, is, can, is there something that I can add this to the psychological body? And if not, then we don't need it. But yeah, it's psychological digestion. And it comes from Dr. Ruben Naiman, who's a professor at the University of Arizona School of Medicine. He's very well known as a sleep medicine specialist. And this, I, I picked this up off of him. I saw a, an interview with him where he, he said, you know, the, he's trying to give a summary of what dreaming is, you know, and he's, he's, he's talking to a general audience and he said, okay, well, psychological digestion. If you are a layman or a kind of a newcomer to, you know, understanding the subject of dreams and what they are and what they're for, then let me give you two words that sums it up. What two words? Psychological digestion. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of the things that I had read an analogy once about dreaming where it was like the the mind sort of sifts through all the memories of the day and it catalogs some into like what would be, we would consider now like a database and then discards the junk. Would that be accurate analogy? Yeah. Yeah, it's digestion. That's the same thing that happens, you know, when food passes through your system and it gets digested. Some of it is kept, which is the nutrients, the good stuff out of the food, the usable stuff. And then the, the leftovers are discarded. So that is a good analogy for describing what dreaming is doing. Now, there is a deeper, there are deeper things that happen in dreams. There are, when 
people look for a theory or a term or something that can describe, oh, well, well what's dreaming for? So they come up with some theory or another, you know, or they come up with a, a term. And Dr. Naaman's is the best that I found that can sum up dreaming in two words. But it's a much, there are other things that are going on that can't be described so easily. You know, I, the other night I was on Reddit and there was a dude who said, that he woke up from a dream where he had taken a picture of, he, in the dream, he had taken a picture of a tree. He said he woke up with a picture of that tree on his phone, on his phone camera. And he looked at the timestamp and it was the middle of the night when he was asleep. Now he could have been pulling her leg, okay, maybe. But I, I know a lot of people who have had these experiences in their dreams that can't be explained conventionally, that they they say that they can turn around and they'll be dreaming and they'll realize they're looking down at their sleeping body and they're able to go and like their like their spirit their consciousness goes and drifts through the house sees what's going on you know in their house then goes outside of the house sees what's happening in the neighborhood some of them can leave all together that environment and go other places and experience things and there have been people who have had um uh, they, they've had tangible physical proof of it that they've been able to bring back. Um, one of them is, he's one of my favorite authors. Um, his name is Michael Talbot, and he wrote the book, The Holographic Universe. Michael says that when he was a kid, he had a dream. He, he would regularly do this. He would leave his body. It's called dream walking, or some people call it um, astral travel. And he, he said that he was one of these, not, you know, regular thing that happens with him. And, you know, there he is. He's walking around and he's like going around his house and checking things out. And he sees that there is a tree outside kind of in a shared area with his neighbors that there was a book sitting there. And he said that the next day his neighbor came up to him and said, hey, have you seen my book? And it turned out that the book that he saw in his dream underneath the tree was the same book that the neighbor was looking for and that he had seen it while he was dreamwalking. Now, you know, you could have somebody who is very highly skeptical who would say, oh, well, you know, it was just intuition or the kid had seen it out of the corner of his eye when he was awake and that's why he dreamed about it. And well, okay, you can keep stretching and stretching on that one. You can keep pounding that you know, um, idea that all these things that millions of people experience nightly must be a coincidence but i've really looked into this um very deeply and i've also had some of these experiences and i can tell you gary that these things do happen and that there are things about dreaming that taps us into the real mysteries of life and might even get you curious enough to find out what the hell is really going on because you can start experiencing things in your dreams that take you into different ways of seeing the world and experiencing your life. You can start having lucid dreams and find that there is a carryover from the lucid state into your waking state. There are ways that the two connect together and it actually changes you as a conscious being. And if you keep going further into it, you find that there are states that are even deeper and that it connects you in with a universe that is full of life, intelligent life. And just, just not just talking about, you know, aliens or whatever. Mm. 
There is a lot out there. But we have decided as human beings that we are going to limit ourselves to this conscious material experience of reality. But dreams will show you that there is a lot more out there. Um, so when it comes to the holographic reality concept, one of the things that just comes to my mind is I had read a book, I think it was the autobiography of a yogi. And yeah. in that book, there's a little bit of a discussion about a great cosmic dreamer. And we're all a part of that dream. Yeah. Um, and I think it's uh, Gopi Krishna. Um, uh, maybe he's the one who wrote it. The, um, and this is, this is something that when people go very deep within themselves and penetrate into the mysteries of life and reality, a lot of them come back with the same um, conclusion that everything that we know as humans having this experience of life and in this world, in this universe, that it is all coming back to one consciousness that is dreaming it up in a sense there's a, a, gal, a guy named Paul Levy. Um, he's uh, some people, I think it might be Levy, Paul Levy, L-E-V-Y. I read his book, The Quantum Revelation, and I followed some of his other work because he has some very interesting things to say about the experience of dreaming is that dreaming and waking reality are both responsive to your thoughts and feelings. When you are in a dream, the landscape, the dream itself, can react to you on the fly and create any experience that it wants to. When you are awake, also, we think that this world is random. That's what we've been taught by our science. But there is actually a lot more going on. The world is responsive to you, to your thoughts and feelings in the same way that your dreams are. And that you are actually creating your reality at some deeper level and that the dreams that you are having and the experience that you are having as this human being is actually in the same sort of way being created in a larger mind that is experiencing itself in a state that is a lot like a dream. And there are people who have had near-death experiences who have gone to other dimensions, other realities in spiritual form who say that after you die, that you enter back into another dream, that your experience of being in the spirit world is very similar, if not identical to being in the dream world. Now there's one for you to uh, digest. Yeah. Um, actually, um, I had an epileptic seizure a couple of years ago and I was out for a really long time, like almost a half hour. And when I came through about a week later, I had received a book in the mail on, um, time travel paradoxes. And the receipt was dated, um, uh, December of 2019, but I received the book in March of 2019. Uh-huh. And, and one of the things that, that I started to think is like, maybe during that seizure, I communicated with like a future self or a past self. 
and sent myself this book because it wasn't even a book that you could buy on Amazon. It came from Oxford University. <laughs> you know, it's so strange. Wow. You know, when you get into um, the what experiences that people have that are outside of the norm, uh, near-death experiences and uh, dreamwalking, astral experiences, things like this, um, you find that there's a, a lot of this stuff that ha happens um, through synchronicity. That's what Carl Jung called it. Um, there's a story told about Jung that um, this would happen um, almost on a daily basis with them. And it was one of the ways that he could tell that he was in good alignment with his dreaming mind and the source that creates dreams is he would have these uncanny coincidences that would happen. And there is a story that's told that he was one day he had encountered something where he needed a piece of information that was from like one of those books, like you said, from Oxford University, and it's sitting on a back shelf somewhere. It's way out of circulation. It's very rare knowledge. Some scholar who lived, you know, a hundred years ago had worked through some problem, you know, spent years on it and wrote a book. And Jung is now working on a similar problem where he needs that information from that scholar to be able to advance his own work. And that, that he would, let's say that he'd come to this impasse the night before, and the next day he would receive a book in the mail that was from someone who had read something that, book, that Jung had written and said, I think you'll find this interesting. And it was mailed a month ago. And it gets to him on the day that he needs it. So, and, 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 un, and not even, you know, he didn't even ask for it. It just came to him out of the blue. And his um, uh, students and protégés and people who were close to him, like uh, Mary Louise von Franz, said that he came to expect it. That he, it was just kind of like he knew that when he was going about his life, doing the work that was for his higher mission and purpose, he knew that he would have everything that he needed when he needed it to be able to carry forward with it. So if it's, you know, he needs to go to Africa and, uh, you know, study some tribe that has a uh, tradition in related to dreams and it's somehow going to help him. He, you know, like the next day, there's a university in that part of Africa that has invited him to be a guest speaker and they're willing to pay his round trip tickets and, you know, give him all the accommodations and, you know, set up everything for him. And all he has to do is show up, you know. And oh, by the way, the professor who is the head of the department down there of psychology happens to be, you know, uh, good friends or uh, is a relative or ancestor or something of like somehow related to that tribe. And you go, well, how in the world did that happen? You know, how, how, how did that line up in a way that is so coincidental that it stretches the mind to even say that it's coincidence? And this is what I tell people is that when these things start happening to you, man, you know you are on the right path and that you are in tune with something that is deeper than yourself and it's trying to help you. There's no such thing as coincidence. That's right. Hey, Einstein said that uh, coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. You know? <laughs> yes. It's, and I looked that up. It's on brainyquotes.com and others. I'd heard that. And I said, well, let me find out if this is, if Einstein actually said this. And yeah, he did. He, he wrote it in one of his papers or books or something. Uh, 
Yeah. And I, I, I have found that um, what he found, I found that there's truth to it. Yeah. My mom actually worked for Einstein. Believe it or not. Oh, awesome. <laughs> when she was a kid, she used to uh, split atoms at uh, Princeton University. Oh, God. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people don't know that it was uh, Einstein's letter to uh, FDR that um, started the Manhattan Project. Because he yeah. to him and said, uh, this can be done. Most people outside of our field of uh, physics do not know that the atom can be split, but it can be done. And if the Germans figure out how to weaponize this, then that's that's it. They have a super weapon that there's no, you know, no stopping it. That people couldn't even conceive of such a thing at the time. So, wow, that's really cool, Gary. Your mom was out there splitting atoms with Einstein, man. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, like that. The, the awesome. whole the whole atom bomb thing actually started at uh, the Institute of Advanced Technology in Princeton. That's where they they started working on it. Boy, they have done some wild stuff there too. The Pear Lab is there for um, uh, engineering research into anomalous um, uh, Princeton engineering anomalies research or something like that. The Pear yes. Lab there has done a lot of groundbreaking work that has found that there are scientific ways of measuring these things that are um, that are outside of the norm. They're one of the few who are empowered to be able to do this kind of work because for most um, academics, it's career ending. You find yourself against a lot of blank, you know, a lot of uh, brick walls if you um, try to do this kind of research. But thank God for, you know, Princeton and places like that where they have the freedom to allow their academics to pursue these things. Another one is um, the Department of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia, Man, they have cranked out um, uh, professors with uh, impeccable credentials um, who have been empowered to do work on things that are um, uh, outside of the norm. Um, Dr. Jim Tucker is there doing research on uh, reincarnation. And between him and Ian Stevenson, they now have more than 2,000 cases that they have um, documented as professors. Um, of reincarnation. Um, it's mostly through memories that children have had that have been able to be verified. And there have been um, other academics who've taken a look at their work and said that they were able to identify more than 200 out of the 2000 cases where the research is absolutely impeccable. That you can go through it and, and try to find some faults or another and they can't be found. And that when you add it all up together and you apply your statistical models to it, it says that the likelihood that reincarnation is real is beyond 99.9%. So anyway, I just wanted Should to we, mention that. For that that, that segues into one of my questions that I had Sweet. written down. Okay, let's do it. Um, nice. When dreaming, is it possible to dream some of, that some of our dreams are from a past life, memories of past life experience? Yeah, and you probably heard my interview on Lighting the Void where I talked yes, about Yes, I did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, I wanted to talk uh, with Joe, uh, Joe Roop about that um, because um, it's a subject that I get asked about a lot. You know, I'm a Reddit moderator of the Dreams Forum, but I'm also a Reddit moderator of the Past Lives and Reincarnation Forums. So those subreddits, as we call them there. 
And um, it's a subject that I, it gets brought up a lot and I've wanted, I've been asked about it a lot too. So I wanted to come up with solid answers for people. And yes, you can dream about past lives. Um, you can have, um, you can see scenes from past lives or you can have dreams that are not necessarily exact replays, but they are trying to help you to understand what's going on in your life now that began with the patterns that have been established before in previous lives that you brought into this life with you. So oftentimes it starts off with seeing yourself as being a different person in a different time and place. It doesn't automatically mean it's a past life, but it's one of the first things that you look for. And you also, you look for the patterns that could be, you know, there's something that you're seeing. The dream, if, you, if, a, if a dreaming mind had access to all of the memories of a past life and it chose to show you one in particular, well, why did it do that? Well, because there's something that it's showing you that's important for you to know that can help you now. And oftentimes it's to help you to understand the patterns that you are reliving. I know someone who is reliving now a pattern that is based on something that happened in a past life. She is someone who sacrifices herself for the well-being of her family and friends. She's, she does it all the time. She follows a pattern. In a past life, she was a martyr. She died to protect someone else. She actually went to the gallows. Now, it's, how do you know that? Well, another guest who was on you know, um, Joe's show, and for privacy's sake, I won't go any further, but uh, I know someone who knows how to read the Akashic Records, and he did it in a trance state and was able to um, help her to understand these patterns. Um, but that's the, the reason why I bring it up is because that's oftentimes what you actually get through the dream is a pattern. I was given a name and it wasn't, the dream was not about a past life. It didn't show me scenes from a past life. It didn't even show me a pattern. What it showed me was a dream character that came up to me and said, by the way, I know your name from a past life. And then it showed me my reaction, which was to get hostile and then at the end of the dream, I went, wait, 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 wait a minute. Don't, don't, you know, I need to know this information. Wait, stop, stop, stop. And then I fall out of the dream and I woke up going, damn, wait, I remember the name. There was, she told me the name just as the dream was ending. What was my name? What was my name? I can't remember. What? Okay. I got to remember. I got to remember. And I racked my brain and racked my brain and it came to me in the shower and I ran out of the shower dripping wet. And by the time I got to a notepad, I'd forgotten it again. And it came to me two more times like that, where I couldn't, I was not, I couldn't write it down while it was fresh in my brain. And then finally it came to me after two weeks in a way that I could write it down and then go, okay, now I have the name. Now what? So I started researching the name and it ended up turning into my first novel called Something Coming. It was just a practice novel in a way. I took 10 years though to practice it and to learn the craft of long form narration, to learn storytelling, to learn all these different things that I'm now using not just as an author, but as a dream interpreter, because why? Simple fact number two, dreams are stories. So the better you can analyze a story and understand storytelling and fiction and legend and myth, 
the better that you can interpret your dreams because dreams are based on the stories and the, the models, the patterns for telling stories that we've been using for, you know, hundreds or thousands of years. So yes, Gary, you can dream about past lives and it can be a very interesting experience. Is that what babies are dreaming? You think like when say a child's a couple of days old or whatever, and they're sleeping all the time, maybe they're dreaming about their past lives. And that's part of, re- uh, part of maybe yeah, like programming, programming those patterns back <laughs> into the new body. Ooh, you just hit on a hell of an idea there. I mean, we can't, of course, they don't have the ability to communicate what they're experiencing in their dreams, you know, um, so we can't ask them. What we can say is, is that children um, as young as two and three years old are documented as having started talking about past lives. Um, I just ran across one at the Past Lives Forum, and it might be one of the top posts there still. Um, the lady actually found she had, when she was three years old, she started talking about a past life. She was getting this information probably in her dreams. And she had names, places, all this stuff. And her parents wrote it down. So here she is, you know, 17 years later. And she decides that she's, she finds those notes from her parents. And she decides she wants to see if the dots connect. And she started meditating on that information. She said she didn't do anything special. She didn't do regression, anything else. She just meditated on it. She started getting information through the meditations that she was able to trace And she found the story of a little girl with her name, uh, first, middle, and last, who had the same mother, the same brother, and died the same way that she did as a young girl. She was the reincarnation of that girl. She had, and she had links to the news articles. She had all that. I mean, so was she getting that information in her dreams and passing it on to her parents? I would say it's very likely. And that even from a very young age, uh, you know, even from infant age, that you're, we know that there's other things from scientifically that there are, that are going on. And the reasons why babies dream so much is because their experience of the world is so new and everything from like, you know, how to pick your nose to, you know, how to use your legs to, you know, processing all the sounds and your experience of the world, you know, you're, it's all new to you. So your brain is in super hyper overdrive trying to process all of this. And we know that um, dreaming is very closely associated with learning. So dude, you just, I wish there was a way we could find out because you just proposed something that um, I haven't heard anyone else make that suggestion before. And it's intuitively, I would say that you're onto something there. Thanks. That brings me to my next extreme, do the dead dream. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a dead dream, like can do the dead dream? Yeah, I like when you die, dream. do you just enter another dream? I think they're in a dream, yeah. And they're in a dreamlike state. And people who have... Um, uh, channeled information from one side to the other um, who've talked about this and are able to ask them what their experience of life is like um, have commonly reported that what is told to them by the living beings who are alive outside of their bodies is is that the state, the experience of living that they're having is a lot like what it was like to have a very vivid dream while they were in body. 
So it's a lot like a lucid dream. Yes. But I mean, I have no way of telling for sure. I can just report to you what I have seen as someone who's been very interested in this subject. And I have followed it through um, writers of from many times, places, and cultures. Yeah. And there's a commonality to what they report. Yeah. Right now, we don't have the ability to know these things for sure. But definitely, the theories are interesting. Yeah, sure is. And without the theories... There's no way, you know, once you have a theory, then we move towards trying to prove those theories in a scientific method. Um, one of the other ones I have are, um, like when I'm dreaming and I dream of like my parents and my parents are passed away. Is, is that possibly a way of them communicating with me or me communicating with them? Uh, I get asked about this a lot. And this will have to be, I'm noticing the clock here. This will have to be the last question before we wrap up. All right. <laughs> uh, but I want to end on this one because it's a great one to, I, dude, I get asked this a lot. And, you know, I think that you have to approach all dreams first at, when you're interpreting them, trying to understand the meaning of them. The significance of them is that it's a conventional dream. If it doesn't matter who the character is, so it's a deceased parent who came to you in a dream, okay? It's a dream character. Can the dream be understood as that character symbolizing something or playing a role in the story like an actor? This is how you approach the conventional understanding of dream characters, which if you go to dreamschool.net and take my dream characters course, you can learn all about it. But you can also go to dreams123.net and look on the right sidebar and see my write-up on dreams about the deceased. It gives my evolution um, in thinking about this from thinking of them all as being conventional dreams. And anytime you see someone who's, you know, a deceased loved one or a friend or something who comes into a dream, that it's just a dream character. And what I learned through Edgar Cayce first and then from others um, and then from my own experience is, is that um, there are some times that these dreams have a realness and a vividness to them that is beyond the ordinary dream, that the person who comes into your dream doesn't behave like a dream character in the sense that they're kind of following a script, it's automated, you know, they're almost robot-like, um, that they're much more responsive and they have much more personality to them. You can feel a sense of the person being there and you can look in their eyes and see the, the intelligence, the personality, the person that you knew. You can sense the heart and the feelings of that person and you know that it, they're really there, that they came to you in a dream. The dream state is when we're the most receptive to these things. So it would be the most likely time for you to be able to be visited by the call it the consciousness of your loved one. And as I've learned from the book, there was a book called, um, it's called From Death to Life, The Incredible True Story of Anthony Joseph. And it's a, a woman who is a, uh, she's a psychic in Sedona, Arizona, whose 27 year old son um, suddenly died. Um, and with, before she could even get out the door after the police arrived and she's like, you know, having to go to the morgue and all that, before she could even get out the door, her son was already there talking to her. And she teaches people that you can have these experiences while you're awake. You don't have to wait until you're dreaming. 
But for a lot of folks, there are things that have to happen first. And a lot of it is the disbelief or the uncertainty about it. And once you can get past that, then you can go to the next step, which is to learn how to have a conscious experience of communicating with your loved ones wherever they are. Awesome. Um, so thank you for being on my show. Um, yeah, Gary, thank I, you, man. I, I, we're going to have to do this again because I have still so many more questions. I know. And, uh, and I had promised my wife, I was like, it'll take an hour and it's an hour and a half. And I've got, yeah, I've got some other things coming. I, I do but, too. Yeah. I, I got to go pick up dinner. <laughs> uh, I feel you. Um, yeah, I can smell it in the background here. <laughs> so um, do you have anything that you want to plug before we end the show? Well, just, you know, if you want to know about dream interpretation, I plugged my book, Rad Owl's Crash Course in Dream Interpretation, and it's, it really does give you the best introduction to it. It's meant for people who um, have no prior experience with dream interpretation, but it also has been able to help people who do have a lot of experience with it so they can really see my process and my method. And then the other thing I would say is go to dreams.reddit, R-E-D-D-I-T.com, um, and join our community there. There's 160,000 subscribers. It's by far the largest and most active community related to dreams on the internet. And I'm Rad Al there. I'm the longtime moderator. I've been there since 2013. And um, that's my baby. You know, people from all over the world come there. And uh, we uh, are all um, drawn there by our common interest in dreams. So come and join our community, be part of the discussion, and we'd love to have you. I will. And I'll also take your course. Sweet. Yeah. All right. I appreciate that, man. Um, uh, I will, I'll look forward to your feedback on it. And um, maybe when you've absorbed that knowledge and information, we can do another, um, another episode of your podcast. Yeah, that would be great. Sweet. Um, so to my listeners, um, please like and review my podcast on whatever platform you are using. It helps this podcast move up in the ranks and easier for people to find. Um, tell your friends, tell your family, and even tell your weird uncle. If anyone wants to be a guest, email me at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. Also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, uh, Everything Imaginable 2020. Also, everythingimaginable2020.com. I have a Patreon site. It's patreon.com forward slash everythingimaginable. You can make a donation to support this podcast. Remember, everything that is was first imagined. See you next week, and thank you for listening. Oh, wait. Yes, I've also forgot. You can buy my book, Enlightenment Guaranteed, the only book on Zen you'll ever need. It's only $3.99, Kindle edition on Amazon. Thank you for listening, and have a great day. Bye-bye.